All right, we're good now. Well, um, last week, I'll have to admit, I was, I was thinking, wow, we really pray a lot in this church, don't we? <laughs> and I honestly think it's because, well, I know it's because we need God's help that much. So before we get started, uh, let's open up in some prayer. Heavenly Father, you are the light of the world. We pray that your word and your light would go forth this morning in power by your Holy Spirit alone. Please help and speak through me, your humble servant, this morning, Lord. And may our hearts be focused on you, our minds attentive, even with distractions. We pray that you would be glorified even in my weaknesses this morning, Lord. May your word fill us up this morning and spur us on to love and good deeds for your glory, Lord. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, John Bunyan is one of my favorite authors and preachers of the past who wrote a famous book called Pilgrim's Progress. If you haven't read it, I'd encourage you to check it out sometime. And in this book, we're introduced to the main character whose name is Christian. The story opens when Christian, clothed in filthy rags, holding a dusty old book, looks down to take a read in it. And he has a massive, massive burden on his back. Many of you can probably picture it. I mean, it's up to here. It's huge. It's weighing him down as he slouches lower and lower to the ground. He was likely there with bags under his eyes, tired and weary, defeated and afraid. Can you feel that pain this morning? Psalm 38.4 says, My iniquities have gone over my head. As a heavy burden, they weigh too much for me. Maybe you can feel Christian's burden. I know John Bunyan, who wrote that story, felt Christian's burden, as well as I. The story of Christian then continues as Christian opens this dusty book in his hand and reads as he cries, What can I do to be saved? What can I do? Christian was frozen. He was totally surrounded by fear. And then, thankfully, by the grace of God, a man named Evangelist walks up to him light as a feather, smiling. You can picture him whistling, maybe, as he walks up to this man. Sir, why are you crying? And Christian tells him, well, sir, I've read this book in my hand, and it's warning me that I am condemned to death, and after that death comes judgment. An evangelist studies this man and replies to him, well, if this is your condition, sir, why are you still standing here? It's a good question, right? Christian shrugs his shoulders as if to say, because I don't know where to go. I've been there. So evangelist points his finger over a very wide field, and he looks in the distance, and he says, you see that light over there in the distance? And Christian, you know, very meager, very timid, looks out there and he says, I think I see that light. And Christian says, well, follow that light and you're going to find the wicked gate, the wicked gate, not wicked, the wicked gate. And he says, okay. So as soon as he gets direction from this man evangelist, what does he do? He turns to that gate, follows that light, and he runs for his life. You can picture him burden and all. He, this man is barely standing up, and he takes off running to that gate because he knows he finally has hope. And meanwhile, while he's running, 
this man, Christian, his family is yelling in the distance because they don't believe him. They're saying, stop, stop. (laughs) And Christian keeps running and he covers his ears to not be ignored. And he screams, life, life, eternal life. And that's what it's all about. He finally, though through many hardships after he gets through this gate, he finally makes it to the celestial city where King Jesus gives him peace and rest forever and ever. It's a great story. Actually, me and my kids got the, a condensed version. We've been reading it these past few weeks. Um, so I'd encourage you to do that. If you have questions about that, let me know afterwards. But imagine this character, a Christian, living at home in the city of destruction, feeling this massive burden holding him down every single day. He reads about a wrath that is coming for him and for his family. And he doesn't know where to go to or where to run. That's a helpless, dark place to be in. But friends, thankfully, God and his great wisdom and mercy has made a way for us to be made right with him. A place where our burdens can be lifted. A place where our sins against a holy God can be removed. And they will be. Matthew 28, 19 Jesus brings this news to the whole world. It's for all the people. Anyone who comes to him will be saved. And then Matthew 28, 19, after Jesus has resurrected from the dead, he says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, he says, I am with you always. Jesus says, I am with you always until the end of the age. So the assumption is that we are going to people. The command, though, is that we are to make disciples. So we are going, but we are also making disciples. In other words, to tell the world how the burden of sin can and will be removed from our backs through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Make disciples baptize them, and what else? Does it say, teach them just how to be saved or get a prayer to pray with them? No, it says we are to teach them to obey all that Jesus has commanded us, everything. So we don't just drop in and then leave, right? That, that would almost be unloving. We sit there and we make disciples with them. We teach them about our Savior. It's a glorious task, but it is a huge task, I admit. So how is that going to happen, though? Well, thankfully, Jesus reminds us that I am with you always to the end of the age. So it's with his help. Thank God, right? But who is Jesus referring to when he says that I am with you? The you in that sentence is you, church. It's us. It's you and me. It's an all-hands-on-deck situation. It's all of us, First Baptist Church, the whole family, It's every single one of us making disciples of all the nations. And we do that by his help. So, and this is the big idea of the text that we're going to study this morning in 3 John. If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to the book of 3 John. And if you're new to the Bible, 3 John is right before the end of the book, um, before Jude and Revelation. So you can flip there now with me. Keep your Bibles open because it's not about what I say, it's about what his word says. Our first point this morning is this. Support gospel work since God accomplishes the Great Commission through his church. Support gospel work 
since God accomplishes the great commission through his church. And we're going to see that in verses 1 through 8 this morning. 3 John. The elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. Beloved, I pray that all may go well with you, and that you may be in good health, as it goes well with your soul. For I rejoice greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Beloved, it is a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testified to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God. For they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support people like these, that we may be fellow workers of the truth. So first off, I want you to notice John's deep love and joy when he writes to his son in the faith in the first few verses. If you're a father, a mother, a grandparent, a mentor even, you can understand that feeling that John has, can't you? John starts off his letter with Gaius, encouraging him that he has been walking in the truth. Walking in obedience that is only made possible by Jesus Christ, by him changing us from the inside out. This word truth shows up about four times in the first four verses. John is encouraging Gaius and building him up because, as we'll see later, he's doing the right thing even though there's opposition. Even when it's hard, even when it's unpopular, he's doing the right thing. He's walking in truth. Let me ask you a question, church. Who have you been encouraged by lately? Who have you seen walking in the truth and and you've just taken the time to pull them aside and say, I am so encouraged by you. Even though there's a lot going on in the world, I am so encouraged that God has done this in your life. And it's helping me. If you haven't, I would encourage you, that would be a good action step for us this week as we go through our week. Think about someone that has been an encouragement to your soul, who has helped you strive for holiness this week. And and tell them that. In verse 3, John is rejoicing greatly about about Gaius because the brothers and sisters in Christ came to John and told him how Gaius' love for Christ was evident and his willingness to make sacrifices for the brothers. His greatest treasure was Jesus Christ, and it was fully evident by the way he sacrificed for him and for the brothers. His greatest treasure was Jesus, not comfort, not his me time, and not his finances or his home. It was Jesus and the gospel message alone. That was his greatest treasure and joy. It was the love for Christ that fueled him because he knows without Christ, he has nothing. We have nothing without him. Guys is walking in the truth and it's evident by the fruit that he bears. That's how he knows. That's how his friends know. Fruit that comes only from God. The Bible gives us an idea of what these fruits should look like too in Galatians 5, 22. It says this, but the fruit of the spirit is this, love, joy, peace, patience, Kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That is only fruit that comes from God. Nothing else. 
Now keep in mind, John doesn't leave us guessing as to the specifics of Gaius' faithfulness either, thankfully. He shows us what Gaius is being faithful in. In verse 5, he says this, Beloved, it is a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers. Strangers as they are, who testified to your love before who? Before the church, right? Gaius is serving others. He is putting forth much effort. And effort equals what? Hard work. (laughs) It's not easy. It wasn't natural for him. And not just aimlessly working and serving anyone. He's serving who? The brothers and the sisters in Christ, who have likely been sent from John's church as missionaries. So he is Effort, he is putting forth effort to serve these missionaries. So we see two churches here, John's church, Gaius' church, working together for gospel work. We see a sending church and also a hosting church. It's all church-centered. <laughs> That's what we're called to do. The church working together for the glory of God and his great name. So even though, even though these people are strangers to Gaius, he hosts these people. Can you imagine that? I mean, think about that. That's not natural for us, right? They may have been strangers, but who were they? They were brothers in Christ. They were family. They were bought by Christ's blood and united together. So therefore, as family, they were on the same team with the same mission. And that's what's important. This is what happens when people are transformed by God and his holy word. We are a family on the same mission in First Baptist, all of us. You might be asking, well, how do you know that they are actually missionaries or gospel workers that he's hosting? And we know that when it comes to the Bible, as Pastor Zach and our other pastors always say, we shouldn't assume anything, right? We should go to his word. So look at verse 7 for the context. And we know from verse 7 it says, they have gone out for who? The sake of the name. For the sake of their name? No, for the sake of the name, Jesus Christ. The name of Jesus. Gaius' love for Christ and his fruits of the Spirit were evident to these brothers as they testified to John when they returned home. They couldn't keep quiet about it. They went home to John and they said, this guy loves Jesus. Can we say that's true of us, church? Gaius was hospitable. Rosario Butterfield, in her awesome book, if you haven't read it, we have it in the bookstall, but we can get you copies. It's called The Gospel Comes with a House Key. The Gospel Comes with a House Key. She talks all about hospitality, mostly for evangelism. But um, here she says that our homes are not our castles. Indeed, they are not even ours. Do you believe that? Our homes are not our castles. Indeed, They are not even ours. Hospitality shares what there is, she says. Hospitality isn't some form of fancy entertainment. It doesn't have to be extravagant. Don't overcomplicate it, church. Don't overcomplicate hospitality. It is sharing just what there is, what you have. It's being open-handed with what you have for the glory of God. Not for ourselves, not to make ourselves look good, but for him. Because he has done everything for us. It's paper plates and pizza that can be a beautiful thing in the sight of God when we're open-handed with it. 
and those you are hosting when it's all done for the sake of his name. So do you think this hospitality was easy for our friend Gaius this morning? Letting strangers, complete strangers, into his home. Maybe it was. Maybe he was an extrovert. Maybe not. We don't know, right? But most likely not. It's an unnatural thing for any of us at first. It might feel kind of weird to do it the first time. The text tells us this took him effort for the gospel. But it was effort that was well, well worth it. But it was effort well worth it. Don't forget our friend Christian from Pilgrim's Progress. This message had to get out. It had to. If not, he would have been stuck in the city of destruction, wallowing, scared to death, and prepared to die. But a man named Evangelist did what? He came to him, and he told him about the good news. He pointed him in the right direction. And there's many instances of that in that story. Acts 4.12 reminds us that there is, no, there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name in heaven given among men by which we, all people, must be saved. And that's still true today. Church, there is salvation in no one else. Nothing else will save us. Absolutely nothing. These gospel workers are going as the Great Commission has commanded them to. And in Romans 10, 14 through 15, Paul writes this. How then will they call on him whom they have not believed? How are they to believe in him whom they have never heard? How are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? Great questions. As it is written, he says, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Church, do you fully understand the gravity of this situation, the gospel message? That if people don't hear it, they will die and go to hell for all eternity. Like, do we believe that? Like, picture yourself before you met Jesus. What if no one ever came and told you? That's... It's heavy stuff. <laughs> so what does this have to do with us, though? Isn't this just a personal letter to Gaius, from John to Gaius? Not exactly. It is, but not exactly. <laughs> Look at verse 8 with me. Context. Verse 8. John tells Gaius, Therefore, since these people are gospel workers, accepting nothing from the Gentiles and their brothers in Christ, therefore, we, he says, we, Notice he switches to we. We should support people like these as Christians as the church. Why? So that we may be fellow workers for the truth. So that's John talking from his church as an elder, as a pastor, writing to Gaius, who's most likely might be a leader, but it sounds like he's kind of just a, church, a good, faithful church member, which is so beautiful and important that he's doing these things. So he's saying we in doing this, we are fellow workers in this truth. The Great Commission is fulfilled. How? It's fulfilled through the church. It is various local churches covenanting together that make up the we here. When we go ourselves or support missionaries as gospel workers, we are taking part in what God has commanded us in the Great Commission. 
And it's a mission given to the church by God himself. So why should we be concerned about missions, church? I got a simple answer for you. Because God himself is concerned about missions. God is. The Great Commission is fulfilled by this. Guys is taking part in receiving these gospel workers in. And then what does he do? He doesn't just keep them there, right? He sends them out. He sends them out. So how is he sending them out? Look at verse 6. This is pretty amazing. Verse 6. He is sending them out in a manner worthy of God. In a manner worthy of God. What does that mean? Well, it means lavishly sending them out. Abundantly. It means sending them out without any needs. Wow. So be hospitable and then send them out in a manner worthy of God. Abundantly. I think he gives us um, some context here, too, of what that should look like. If you look in the, in the later verses, he says that he is sending them out to the Gentiles, right? He's going to the people, and that, that, that just means the unbelievers. So he is sending them out to the Gentiles. It means they're not taking any money from them. So, church, we should, we should send them out and um, send them to the Gentiles um, without need. So that the Gentiles should not be paying any money to bring these men in. We should be doing that lavishly. Paul says this also in Titus 3, 13. Do your best to speed Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their way. And then he says, see that they lack nothing. That's how valuable this message is that we're bringing. It's not worth the, the financial struggle, right? Send them out. Let's go. <laughs> Let's do it lavishly. So what does that mean? Should you leave here today and start sending money to every missionary you can find? Might not be a bad thing. I mean, hey. But should you leave here today and do that? Well, as a church, we've decided to partner with just a few missionaries so that we can care for them better, be hospitable with them, and most importantly, provide for their needs. How? In a manner worthy of God. So we want to do that very well. Rather than give minimal support to a large number of workers that we can't really keep up with, we don't know very well, we seek to support as many theologically like-minded gospel efforts as we can and support a number that we can support generously with our finances. And then we can pray for specific needs they have. We can know their families. We can be in the work together with them. We can be co-laborers, as it says here. It can be exhausting for missionaries, and we want to be a church that cares for them well in a manner worthy of God, lavishly, abundantly. Sometimes when missionaries come back for furlough, they may have to travel to about 10 to 15 different churches. Can you imagine that? 10 to 15 churches that support them just to give updates, and they may not be all in the same state a lot of times, which can be more than taxing than being on the field itself. Wouldn't it be much better for their families to come home and rest and recharge together? Visit different family members, their parents they haven't seen in a while before they go back to a foreign country to do good gospel work. To come back and be filled up by gospel teaching, by hospitality, like we see from our friend Gaius. That's what I want. You know, that sounds so good to me for our church. Our aim as a church is to strategize and plan and pray and go and deliver the good news that God has given us. That's our goal. And we should trust him with the results. We don't know what's going to happen with it, but we can trust him with it. Wouldn't it be much better to do it that way? 
So practically, if you have any questions about what this looks like for our church or for you, please come talk to one of the elders afterwards. They'll be at the doors. We would love to get your feedback, get your thoughts, and just your willingness to be hospitable to these missionaries that we serve. And that includes also, just a side note, if, if, you're, if you want to be a missionary, if you want to go overseas short-term, long-term, we have many opportunities like that. And we would love to walk alongside you in that. So support gospel work because God accomplishes the Great Commission through his church. Gaius sets this good example for us to follow this morning. But John also provides for us an example to avoid by setting up a contrast with a man named Diotrephes. So that's point number two. Avoid selfishness that opposes the work of Christ. Avoid selfishness that opposes the work of Christ. I'm going to start in verse 9, and we're going to go to 15 at the end of the book. I have written something to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. So if I come, I will bring up what he's doing, talking wicked nonsense against us. And not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers and also stops those who want to and puts them out of the church. Beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Whoever does good is from God. Whoever does evil has not seen God. Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone and from the truth itself. We also add our testimony, and you know that our testimony is true. I had, to write, I had much to write to you, but I would rather not write with pen and ink. I hope to see you soon, and we will talk face to face. Peace be to you. The friends greet you. Greet the friends, and each by name. So you see, there's a stark contrast between our friend Gaius and Diotrephes. We've seen Gaius living selfishly, selflessly, Gaius living selflessly and open-handed with his time, his money, and his possessions. Why? For the sake of the name, for the sake of Jesus. And now we meet Diotrephes on the opposite side, who is selfish with his things. He has a closed hand. John says Diotrephes likes to, what? Put himself first. And in contrast to Gaius' great effort, we see Diotrephes choosing the effortless route, right? We see John mention that he wrote a letter to the church, to this church, but Diotrephes, who is most likely a leader, tosses this letter out. He doesn't deliver the mail that's coming. He doesn't submit to John's authority either. John is upset about this because Diotrephes is living selfishly, and he's doing things not for the sake of the name, but for the sake of his own name. John lets Gaius know that he sees and he hears what is going on, and he will bring it up to the church and church discipline, according to Matthew 18, because this is a serious matter. John isn't upset that Diotrephes is ruining John's name, so don't be confused about that. He's upset because he is disrupting the unity of the church and he is disrupting the mission of the gospel to go forth. That's why John's upset here. So some of you may be shocked at maybe John's directness, but God is a God of order. Diotrephes is not submitting to the authority that God has given to the church. 
And it seems his issue is more likely with someone like John telling him what to do in his letters, right? That seems to be the problem. It seems to be a pride issue. And it's a battle that we all fight. So don't be confused there. <laughs> we can all easily become a diatrophies left to ourselves. Too many times we want to be first. But scripture says that the first shall be last and the last first, right? The Christian faith is about dying to ourselves, our want-to-be-firstness, <laughs> if you will. Because church, we, and that's me included, we have nothing to boast about in ourselves, in our own efforts, in our lives. We have nothing to boast about. Our only boast is Christ. Our only boast is his message going forth. It's the only thing that can save. So if you're given a place of authority by God's grace, don't be confused. It's only by the hand of God. It's not by your own doing or your own charm or um, skills. It's only by the gift of God. He can easily take that away if he wants. It's to serve Christ's kingdom. That's why he gives gifts to us and to be partners in this gospel mission. It's not about you. It's not about me. It's just about the kingdom. It's about Jesus and what he has done. We are sinners who need a savior. After all, church, we were so desperately lost and sick that the God of the universe had to humble himself, come to this broken place that we broke, and die for us an excruciating death. And I don't, I don't say that lightly. <laughs> that, that's, that's how broken we are, is that he had to do that for us. So that he is our boast. If you're given a place of authority, that's our boast. And, and we're u- supposed to use it to glorify him. But that same God has graciously set up leaders in the church because he loves order to exercise authority. And we see that in Ephesians 4. You can read that later today. But notice, everything you read in the New Testament assumes church family. Everything in the New Testament You can't really read it without the lens of church membership, church family going forth. But Christianity is not a lone ranger religion. It's a body of believers who graciously, humbly covenant together to help each other fulfill Christ's commandments and to help each other make it to the end for his name's sake. That's what we're doing here. That's all this is for, so that we can make it to the end and glorify God and make his message go forth. That's why we're here. Your membership is not just your name on a card. My membership is not just my name on a card. Our membership really matters here. This is kingdom work. It's a place where the making of disciples and teaching all that Christ has commanded, like the Great Commission says, that's where this happens in the church. That's why missions and church planning are synonymous together. They should go hand in hand. Because you can't just jump over somewhere, parachute in, tell them about God, and leave, right? you got to start a church. you got to make disciples of all nations and teach them all he's commanded. Because life is hard. <laughs> life is not easy. We need a church family to help us get there. Diotrephes is not only ignoring the guidance of John here, but he's doing more than that, right? He's gossiping and he's stirring the pot with unfounded claims, and evil claims even. But let's be honest, church. Being like Gaius, living our lives with an open hand all the time, with our money, 
time and possessions, that is not natural for us, for any of us, me included. It takes great humility that is only given by God as a fruit of the Spirit. It's not natural for us to want to give up what we have or what we think we have earned for the good of others, for the gospel. It's just not. That's true. It's not even natural to submit to someone else's authority either. It's supernatural work that only comes from God. And I'll keep saying that. (laughs) That's the only way it happens. And we all must submit to Christ as he has graciously submitted to the Father in his plan to come and die for us. He did all that in submission. So we should submit. We should submit to God's great plan. It's by the grace of God that God was willing and able to do and love like he was doing. It's a beautiful picture of what Christ looks like. If, if you want to know, like, are being made in the image of God, reflecting who God is, Gaius is doing that. He's reflecting who Christ is and how hospitable he has been to these brothers. So he is an, Diotrephes, on the other hand, is in opposition to the mission of God and Christ's name being spread for his own glory, his own preference, and his own gain. I desperately pray that we would be a church that is unified in the gospel for the message of the cross of Christ. That's our only way of unity. That gossiping and stirring the pot over, not gossiping and stirring the pot over preferences or what we want or what we desire or how we see things should be best, that's not how unity happens. That's not how the gospel goes forth. That's how the gospel kind of stalls a little bit, it feels like at times. So we pray, pray, I would encourage you to pray this week for our church that we would prioritize and talk with each other about missions, about gospel work going forth. He, um, and lastly, Diotrephes is refusing to welcome the brothers, the missionaries, and worse, he's wrongfully enacting church discipline. So he's abusing his authority to put out people who, like Gaius, host and care for these missionaries. He's misusing his authority. Why? Because he is blinded by pride. Because he is he's putting himself first. And I pray that that is not us, right? We need to look at ourselves this week and pray about that. Are we living to put ourselves first in the way we live our lives throughout the week? Or are we living to put the name of Christ first, as it should be? What Diotrephes is doing in opposition to Christ's way, we see in Matthew 25. Whatever you did for the one of the least of these brothers, Jesus says, of mine, you did for me. Or when Peter tells us in 1 Peter 4, 9, to offer hospitality to one another. How? How should we offer hospitality? He says, without grumbling. So don't just offer hospitality. Don't just do it lavishly. But do it without grumbling. That's hard. Do it without grumbling. Even if you've had a long day, do it without grumbling. Some of us are probably like, hold on. (laughs) Hold on now. Isn't it enough just to show hospitality? I mean, come on. Nope. He says, do it without grumbling. So how can we actually do that, church? I mean, really, realistically, how can we do that? Because we know all good gifts come from God alone. Everything we have been given is from the Father. He is the one who has given us these good gifts. They're not ours. It's God who has given us the brains to think, 
and the hands to work and do our jobs, mouths to speak, a voice to be heard. It's only by him. He's given us all those things. He could take it away any second if he wanted to. He has given it to us. So we should, we should freely give it back to everyone else. We can do nothing without him. If we think we can, church, we're just fooling ourselves, honestly. We are. We have nothing that hasn't been given to us by him and for him. Ephesians 2 says this, and it's really important. So listen, Ephesians 2.10 says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus. Why? Why did he do that? Why are we his workmanship created in Christ? He says, for this purpose, good works, for doing good works, which God has prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. So he has created us for these good works. He made us like this. And he's, he even has the good works laid in front of us. All we have to do is walk in them by faith. So church, that's my encouragement to us. Let's look for those good works, this hospitality, these mission efforts, and just walk in them by faith and trust the Lord with the rest. Let's strategize and plan together, pray together, train up missionaries, pray for and send out missionaries to plant churches to see the message of the gospel go forth, to see people be saved, see people who have never heard the gospel before be saved and have hope. Church, I'll never forget I think it's been three years now, um, when we went to East Asia to serve missionaries that we support, that our church, our local church supports them. I'll never forget when we went there, we sat down in the cafeteria. Miss Gay was there. We sat down at the cafeteria, and I just looked across from this guy, and I remember asking him if he had heard of Jesus. Like, what's his sense? Like, you know, what's his sense of life? How does he feel? What, what are his emotions and, and his experience in life? And I remember him telling me, I just, I always felt like there was something more. He said, I always felt like there's kind of like this heaviness or this like darkness about my life, this emptiness. <laughs> just like our friend Christian earlier on in Pilgrim's Progress. He said, I always felt that. And I always felt that there was something more. And, and I asked him if you ever heard of Jesus before. You know what his answer was? What do you think? No. Never, never seen a Bible before. Never heard of the name of Christ before. That, that really, that changed my life that day. I, I remember that. Not to be dramatic, but that changed my life. Hearing him say that he has never heard of that. And that wasn't the only instance. There was plenty of them. There was plenty of instances like that. So we have two choices. We can support missions and gospel work. Choice number one, support missions and gospel work, or we can oppose missions and gospel work. There's no, really, there's no in between. You know, you're, you're with Christ or you're against him, as they always say. So what an honor, though, it is that he invites us to do that with him. We aren't just called, saved, and left on our own. We're called and saved, and then we are commissioned to share the gospel. All we have to do, our job is not very hard, <laughs> All we have to do is to deliver that mail. We just have to deliver it, share the good news. And we should support those who deliver the mail where we can't physically be because it's supposed to go to all nations. That's our mission. So if you're hearing this this morning, though, and you're not yet a follower of Christ, I pray that you would come and talk to one of the elders that will be at the doors afterwards. 
come, come talk to us. Just ask questions. Nothing, nothing crazy has to happen. <laughs> Just come to the elders and ask them, so what is this Jesus about? Do that this morning. I'd encourage you. He is the one who made the world, you included, and everything in it. So I pray that you would come to him this morning and that you, if you are weary, that you would finally find rest this morning. Let's pray together, church.